there's, there's value to that. Well, good morning. Uh, this morning I'm kind of hiding myself up in the front corner behind a mask of just getting over a bit of a head cold, so you'll excuse me for uh, having the cup of tea here just to keep my voice going and, as I said, kind of hiding up at the front and not being maybe as, as social as I would like and, and, and greeting you as well. But I, I am glad to be here. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're joining us online as well this morning. And uh, we're going to continue through the book of First Peter. So if you have a Bible, I'll invite you to start making your way there. And we're in really the, the heart section of this book. Geographically, we're in chapter 3, but maybe don't start looking at chapter 3 just yet. Give me, a, give me a minute to get there. Geographically, chapter 3 is right in the middle of a five-chapter book, so we're there. Uh, but also, the teaching through this section where we've been for the last couple of weeks and will be this week and next is really at the heart of what Peter wants to say to the churches that he wrote this letter to. This heart section starts back in chapter 2, about verse 11, and continues through today's passage, and we'll look at the conclusion next week uh, in chapter 3, verses uh, about 8 to 12 or so. And a couple of weeks ago, when we arrived at 2, verse 11, chapter 2, verse 11, I said, you know what, I, when I initially had penciled out how we're going to get through this letter, we were going to do the whole thing in one go, from 2, 11 to uh, 3, 12. It's going to be awesome. We'll get there. And then the planner inside of me said, if we do that, we'll be able to tie a nice bow on First Peter and be done in time for Advent. Away we go. But as I studied and, and prayed and looked at the text, I was like, I don't know how to handle that all at once. So we need to spread it out, spread it out a little bit, stretch it out a little bit, linger in these words, and so we have. Well, just before we, we get into First Peter, let me ask you a question. First, I want you to think in your minds, or picture in your mind's eyes, some of the Christians that you know, followers of Jesus that you know. Maybe you can put yourself in that list too. And then think about those around you who maybe don't yet know Jesus, or aren't yet following Jesus. And as you think either in, in general terms of those two groups, I'm going to kick this over if I'm not careful. Either in general terms or, or as you think about that uh, and faces come to mind, what's the difference? That's the question. What, what's the difference that you see in, in the lives of those two groups? Think about politics. Maybe don't think too hard about politics. Think about family and family life. Think about relationships finances, and time management, kind of all of these areas. What's the difference? Is there a difference? Do you see a difference in the way that followers of Jesus live compared to the way that those who don't yet know Jesus live? I hope so. That's what Peter's been writing about, is that as we follow Jesus, we will increasingly look more like strangers and aliens to a culture that doesn't follow Jesus. Well, speaking about that culture, think about the culture that you live in. And for many of us, it is Bow Valley, it's Canmore, it's Banff, it's down the highway a little bit the other direction, Dead Man's, Lac des Arts. If you're joining online or visiting, it might be somewhere else, but the question still stands. When you think about uh, your culture that you live in versus uh, the Christian culture, how does the culture that you live in view Christians and church? Maybe even religion. 
I suspect that you've noticed, as I have, that the world around us views Christianity a lot different than it did even 10, 15, 20 years ago. There's a lot more, the nicest word I could come up with, I think, is skepticism. There's a lot more uh, misunderstanding or, or not understanding and just thinking it's weird and keeping a distance. Maybe the more realistic words are there's a lot more animosity and contempt towards followers of Jesus, church, even religion in general. And so I bring this up to get us thinking because there's a sense in which Peter is writing to churches 2,000 years ago, dealing with many of the exact same issues we're wrestling with today. And so as we get to this heart section, I, I just want to back up a little bit to remind us where we've come in the last couple of weeks. So chapter 2, verse 11, Peter writes these words as he gets to the heart of his letter to these churches living in Gentile lands. Says, My dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles, because your life doesn't look like the life of those around you, I urge you to abstain from the sinful desires that wage war against your soul. And conduct yourself honorably among the Gentiles, among those who don't yet know Jesus, so that when they slander you, they will observe your good works and they will glorify God on the day that he visits. Peter launches into this section saying, I know you guys feel like outsiders. I know that the, your actions and the way you're living as you strive to follow Jesus confuse the world around you. They don't get it. Lean into that. It's okay. Saying the way that Jesus has called us to live is countercultural. It has been since the first century. It still is in the 21st century. He says, embrace that status. He says, to recognize you're in a war against sin. Death is defeated as we sung, but, but sin is still present in this world. And don't give into it just because culture is moving one way. Don't give into it just because they say they're right. Recognize that you're still fighting every moment of every day against sinful desires that wage war against your soul and want to crush you. He says, live like one of God's representative, God's ambassadors, so that the people who don't yet know him might look at how your life has been transformed, and then they might be transformed from ones who were once slandering Jesus to the ones who give glory to Jesus. The way that we live and conduct ourselves as we strive to follow Jesus is to be one of the greatest arguments for the existence of God and the truth of the gospel, which is a high bar, admittedly. Then Peter starts through this section to give us examples of how this looks. We'll get through it quickly. Verse 13, he says, So submit to every human authority. He says, ultimately, all authority comes from God anyways. And so we are called to humbly and willingly follow our government from the highest levels to the lowest levels, with the one caveat that if they tell us to break God's law, then we obey God, not the law. But as we talked about that week, that, that in that passage a couple of weeks ago, the instances where that actually happens are probably a lot less than maybe we'd like to or are in reality. And so we flipped through the text a little bit, and we saw a couple of examples of when people 
rejected the authority of the governing officials and followed God. And we pointed to the book of Daniel, and Daniel himself was, was an example. Uh, my notes say Rack, Shack, and Benny. So if you're a VeggieTales fan, you remember Rack, Shack, and Benny. Uh, <clears throat> if you read the Bible, you'll know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were told, bow down and pray to this idol. And did they obey? No, they knew that was wrong, and it cost them, right? They were thrown into a fiery furnace. God delivered them, but they still were willing to go to that length. And we looked at Peter himself. We can go back to the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John were thrown in prison for preaching, and they were brought out of prison then and brought to the authorities, to the religious authorities, and they said, stop talking about Jesus. They said, we can't. Right? So that, that bar for government insurrection is really high, higher than maybe we'd like it to be. The next week, last week, we went to, we looked at verse 18 and, and following. And it said, household slaves or, or servants, submit to your masters. Not only to the good and gentle ones, but also to the cruel ones. And Peter explains that, you know what, we are all actually called to suffering. This is part of the life of a follower of Jesus. It was part of Jesus' life, so how can we su suggest that it won't be part of ours? And in the midst of that, the, these two submission calls, he points us, Peter does, points us to Jesus as the perfect example of one who submitted to ungodly authority, as one who suffered unjustly, and yet he was without sin. But not only was he our example, he was also our substitute because he knew Jesus knew good and well that we could not live up to this example. We can't live up to that standard on our own. Now, remember, this letter, 1 Peter, was written, we've said, in about first century, about the year 60 or so. So when we consider the Roman Empire, I don't know how much history you have, but you can answer the question regardless. When you consider the Roman Empire on one side, and some sort of new, fledgling, we're not sure what to do with this fringe sect that looks sort of like Judaism, but maybe it's not. They're talking about someone coming back from the dead. In that relationship, where does the power lie in the world? Worldly. Think worldly. Don't think we all know Jesus is the answer. Okay. Over here, right? The Romans have the power. So Peter is writing to those who are kind of, from a worldly perspective, lower in the stacks. When it comes to the relationship between a master and his servant or his slave, where, again, from a worldly perspective, where does the power dynamic lie? The master's got the power, right? I'm setting up here. Hopefully you're seeing where we're, where we're going. In those days, many, if not most, Christians, followers of Jesus, were not in positions of power by the world's perspective. And even though they served a much greater God than the emperor who declared himself God. And even though they were, they were slaves to a much better master in Jesus than whoever they might have been in their position of work here, their life standard by the, the world standards was generally one of weakness or at very best lower. Now you're thinking, I remember all that. Why are you setting this up? Well, as we flip into chapter 3, you'll see that this text can be a little bit spicy. It is definitely alien or exile living, continuing. And it's a text that has been misused and abused and caused a whole lot of pain. So as we get to it, I'm going to start reading. I'm going to have a sip of tea. 
and then I'll humbly unpack it for us. First Peter chapter three. Verse one. He says, in the same way, that's how the letter opens. I gotta stop there for just a second. This is not a new thought, because he just said in the same way. He's like, so don't forget what I've been talking to you about slaves and masters, government and not government, and even how you live as strangers and exiles, fighting sin and living so that people see Jesus. In the same way, wives submit to your husbands so that even if some disobey the word, they may be won over without a word by the way that their wives live when they observe your pure and reverent lives. We live in a culture that for years has been telling our kids, who are no longer kids, from a very young age, you can do whatever you want, you can be whatever you want, you can have whatever you want, just go get it, and don't submit to anything you don't want to. And we live in a culture that, that, that can and has painted uh, manhood and masculinity as negative traits, at times rightly so, Sometimes we swing the pendulum too far on some of these things. Don't we? Now, when we come to this text, I, I don't want to necessarily say I understand the pains that it has caused, because I don't think I fully can. But I can grasp a semblance of, of, of the hurt and the, um, the pain that has come because of men abusing verses like this and using them in evil ways. Let's call it what it is. So as we start to unpack this, let me start by pointing out a few things that Peter is not saying in chapter 3, verse 1. Okay? Peter is not saying to wives, if your husband asks you to abandon your faith, abandon your faith. Peter's not saying, wives, if your husband asks you to sin, sin. He's not saying that. Peter's not saying you always have to agree with your husband and never present a differing opinion or another view or some additional information. He's not saying if your husband, if your husband is unfaithful to you that there's no biblical recourse to that. He's not saying uh, what Peter's saying. It doesn't mean if your relationship is abusive, whether that's physically or emotionally or verbally, that you just have to sit at home and be quiet and take it. Peter is not saying any of those things here. One of the things he is saying is that the relationship he's talking about is to your own husband, not to everyone. Wives submit to your own husband, not to all men. Okay, that's a, let's get that out there too. Now, it feels like Peter could probably say a whole bunch more here before he just carries on into kind of describing what he's talking about. But he doesn't. He just carries on. So we're going we're gonna to linger here for a minute because it's important that we don't move on from hard things. And so let me say uh, two, or, two or three more things about this first couple of verses here because, again, it's important. The first is this. Do not, do not cherry-pick this verse and make all encompassing statements from it especially if you're a husband. Every verse, including this one, is part of a larger context. This verse is part of a chapter, which is a part of a book, which is part of the New Testament, 
which is part of the whole scriptural narrative. And so we do a wild disservice when we pull one verse out and try to interpret it from the 20-some words that Peter has said in chapter 3, verse 1. This is not the only biblical instruction on marriage. Let's not assume that it is. If I was doing premarital counseling or marriage counseling with a couple, I can tell you when we sit down and we open our Bibles together, this is not the first place I'm going to go. There's a ton more. There was, at this time, some cultural reasons for this instruction. And one commentator I read, Karen Jobes, does a fantastic job of of balancing the the understanding of the the power dynamic that we just came through with government and and, uh, slaves and masters and looking at what would happen in an honor and shame culture if all of a sudden part of the household, being the wife, just rejected everything the household was doing, kind of went her own way following her own God. And there's there's massive consequences. And so just like we said uh, in, in the slaves and masters, that Christianity didn't come in and say, let's overthrow the Roman Empire and do things our own way. No, no, it works subversively from within the culture. So there are, reasons, there are cultural reasons for this instruction, but again, throughout the Bible, there are lots of passages as well that speak to order in the home. The last thing I... I want to say kind of about cherry-picking this verse, at least. Um, Let me preface it. Last week, we we talked about kind of conflict resolution a little bit, and some people, when conflict comes, they fight. Some people, they flight. I'm a flighter. I don't like to be, like, in the middle of confrontation. If confrontation rises, I'll, like, (laughs) kind of hide, right? In the same way as lead pastor of this church sometimes hard things need to be said stands need to be taken and this is one of those times men never use this verse on your wife never it's not okay it's not okay no matter how heated you are to say you have to submit to me it won't end well anyways But do not misuse and abuse the Bible by throwing this verse at your wife. Okay? All right. When we came to there, this this too is why we reviewed this section so well before we turn to chapter 3. Because we don't want to cherry-pick this verse and cherry-pick this section even. Peter's not doing marriage counseling. If we put that last slide back up, look at where he's come through, and he's continuing to teach, right? I said the first words of chapter 3 are in the same way. He's continuing the thought. So look at where he's come from. 2 verse 13, submit to authority. 2 verse 18, submit to your masters. 3 verse 1, submit. Uh, Spoiler alert, verse 7, husbands, in the same way, call that submit. And then next week, verse 8, there, I, I think, Chapter 3, verse 8, is actually not a bad definition of submission. And so it might be worth even flipping there now. Let me read this for it. 1 Peter 3, 8. Finally, this is the concluding thought. He's coming to the end of an idea. Finally, all of you be like-minded and sympathetic. Love one another. Be compassionate and humble. Not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult. But on the contrary, give blessings since you were called for this. 
That's where it's going. That's what we're talking about. This is a, a, a major theme of all of 1 Peter, but especially this heart section that we're in is biblical submission. And who's our example in all of this anyways? Are you sure? Jesus. Jesus. I think kind of the last thing I want to say about verse 1 here is, is, is look at, at why Peter says to wives to submit to your husbands. It's absolutely not because the wife is of less value than the husband. Absolutely not. Let's read it together. Submit to your husbands so that, we always have to pay attention to the so that's, right? It's important. Even if some disobey the word, they may be won over without a word by the way their wives live. It's about pointing them to Jesus. Just like all the other examples we've been walking through. Peter, he does have a train of thought running through this. The reason we're called to this is to, to point to Jesus. Now, she's not here, but I can still talk about her. I am so blessed to be married to my wife. She would want me to make sure to say that she's not perfect, but neither is her husband, and so we're okay. And I don't tell her this enough, but she is inspiring to me. Her life is such an example to me in so many ways. There's so much that I, I know I have started to learn from her. I'm a slow learner. But there's so much that I can continue to learn for her. How she has such a heart for our kids. And a heart for family and friends and making sure people feel welcome and included. And even though she and I get along well as introverts, like she, she, she cares for people in ways that I really have to work hard to. The way that she longs to grow in her faith and bring people along in that journey is inspiring to me. She's this. She doesn't have to say a word to me about any of that. Just watch. The way that she lives makes me want to be more like Jesus. And to grow in how I love her and love others and care for and lead my family. It's always it's a little bit awkward, but I'm going to put in a plug for the ladies' Christmas gathering. Uh, I can't tell you <laughs> how many times in the last couple of weeks Naomi's got texts from like random people. Not random. They have her phone number, so they can't be that random. They're like, "Oh, I saw your picture in the paper. Uh, what's this Christmas gathering?" And Naomi's like, mm, "You should come. It's going to be awesome. She's amazing. Um, she's going to be sharing the joy of Jesus, and so we are praying." for what God is going to do through that evening um, because there are people who don't know the joy of Jesus who are coming because Naomi is going to be there. And so we pray for that. But Peter does move on, and so he, he has given us this instruction, and then he wants to sort of uh, tell us what it looks like. So he starts to explain to us and describe for us what this, this living hope, which is the whole letter, is, is about living hope. What about this, this soul-winning conduct looks like for Christian wives? And as Peter often likes to do, he starts with a contrast. He starts by saying, it's not this. And then he'll get to what it is. And look what he says in verse 3. I'm on the wrong page yet. He says, don't let your beauty consist of outward things like elaborate hairstyles and wearing gold jewelry. 
but rather what's inside the heart, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Now, the culture that Peter was writing to, we always have to understand the culture because sometimes there are some differences. The culture that Peter was writing to had an obsession with looks. And women were under all kinds of pressure to attain some, like, unattainable, unrealistic standard of beauty. Some things never change, unfortunately. And so in those days, as well as today, they were, they were fixated on having their hair done just right, right? Wearing the best jewelry, having the finest clothes, keeping up with the trends, all the things. And Peter is saying, none of that matters. Now, does anyone remember the, the children's books, Amelia Bedelia? We got a couple, a couple maybe, familiar with the name at least. Well, she was a character in kids' books that um, the author started writing them actually in 1965. So they've been around a little while. And she wrote Amelia Bedelia books up until her passing in about 1988. But then there was such a, like a, a demand for the stories to continue. Her nephew actually took up the mantle and kept writing Amelia Bedelia books, which is, I was on Wikipedia this week, can you tell? But there's a story about a kid and her family uh, who takes everything they hear and does them exactly literally. A couple examples. Her family around the house, they didn't dust the shelves because why would you put dust on your shelves? They undusted their shelves. When, when she was asked to put out the lights, she went up and she unscrewed the bulbs and walked outside and put them outside, put out the lights. When she was asked to bake a sponge cake, she went to the cupboard, pulled out a sponge, and put it in the cake. Everything literally, right? That's how, that's the, the fun of the Amelia Bedelia. So when you read here, let me get it back to First Peter. When you read 1 Peter 3, 3, do not Amelia Bedelia that verse. Okay? Peter's not saying, don't braid your hair. If you've come to church with a braid, take it out. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, take out your earrings, don't wear necklaces, and never wear nice clothes. He's not saying that. He's going after the heart. He's speaking about the emphasis, not a literal rule, and I, I hope we can see that. The pressure that, that our culture continues to put on women is just horrendous. And I think maybe it's getting a little bit better lately as we, I don't know, hopefully grow. But I can't remember the last time I was standing in the checkout line of my local grocery store and I looked at the shelves of magazines and they were telling me how to lose 10 pounds by Christmas, how to get the newest look how to bake whatever I should for Christmas, and, 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 just demanding stuff of me. Maybe every once in a while there's a men's health that says, you know, get those beach abs ready, but there's no beach coming. So forget those abs. The pressure a culture puts, especially on women, is just horrendous. And the cost of maintaining or trying to attain an, an unattainable standard of beauty is, is huge for our women and our girls. But again, the Bible speaks against this, and Peter's doing it right here too. Women are not of value because of their looks, their jewelry collection, or their wardrobe. Peter drives this here, as, as one commentator says, Peter wants to free women from the obscene obsession of looking good. I read that, loved it. Obscene obsession. Have freedom from that. Men, this is on us too. Dads of daughters, men everywhere, 
unite and fight against this because it's killing our growth. So what does Peter call you to? Verse 4. Rather, what's inside the heart, the imperishable quality, which should maybe kind of hearken our minds back to chapter 1 where where Peter's writing about this this imperishable gift stored in heaven for us. That's what we're looking towards, right? Look at what's inside the heart, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Another translation says, which in God's sight is very precious. And we want to be wanted. God wants that. You adorn yourself with the imperishable beauty that's located in the hidden person of your heart. Just pay attention to how you're caring for your soul, your inner person, not just your exterior. And he goes on and says to, to work out and cultivate a quiet and gentle spirit. Now don't misread quiet and gentle spirit as weak. You know, saying just sit down and be quiet and don't ever raise a stink. Because that's not what Peter is saying here either. He's saying compare how much time you spend on your outward, outward appearance with how much soul work you do. Because the soul work is what's actually important. He's not saying be weak. He's saying draw close to Jesus. Because Jesus was also gentle and meek and kind. And the motivation to do this, it's this this heart, this spirit is one that's very precious to God. It's of great worth in God's sight. So Peter continues. He doesn't just give us instruction and motivation and then move on. He gives us an example to follow. And it's beautiful that this example shows us that that a gentle and quiet spirit that he just talked about doesn't mean trampled wallflower. Look at verse 5. So for in the past, the holy women who put their hope in God also adorned themselves this way, worked on their inside, and submitted to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, which is a word of submission there. Uh, you have become her children when you do what is good and do not fear any intimidation. One writer says this, Sarah is the perfect choice. So, so often when, when Christian women hear preachers call upon them to put on a gentle and quiet spirit, the culture will bombard their minds in an effort to convince them that God's word is asking them to be weak. And our culture is constantly trying to make women think that applying this principle will in the end be a setback to women everywhere. But Peter says, no, 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 look at Sarah. Sarah was a woman who got in her husband's face a time or two, and he needed it a time or three more. When Peter says, remember, Sarah called Abraham Lord, as he's talking about this submission thing, it happened once that we have recorded for us, so let's flip back there and look, because it is important. Genesis chapter 18. We get to this section in, in Abraham and Sarah's story. Uh, Abraham has been called. He's going to be the, the, the father of the nation. All these things are going to happen. We get to 18. They're still, how many kids do they have? Do you remember? Zero. Are they still young and fertile? No, they're not. But God's promise was what? Father of many nations, descendants that outnumber the stars in the sky and the sand on the sea. And they're wondering, I'm old, he's old. How is, how's this going to happen? And so they get a visit from the Lord. That's what we're kind of stepping into here, parachuting into in, in uh, chapter 18. Let me pick it up at verse 9. So the, the, the Lord has come and vis has visited them, and they ask Abraham, where is your wife Sarah? 
And he says there, she's in the tent. And the Lord said, I will certainly come back to you in about a year's time, and your wife Sarah will have a son. Now Sarah was listening in the entrance of the tent behind her. And Abraham and Sarah were getting all old and getting on in years, and Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Sometimes we look at the Bible and think they just don't know anything. They, they know how babies are made. They know how it works, and she knows this is ridiculous that you're still telling us this years after this has left me. Verse 12, so she laughed to herself. After I'm worn out and my Lord, there it is, and my Lord is old, will I have delight? But the Lord asked Abraham, why does Sarah laugh? Saying, can I really have a baby when I'm old? Is anything impossible for the Lord? So that at the appointed time, I'll come back to you. And in about a year, she will have a son. Sarah's nervous laugh was actually one of disbelief, wasn't it? She couldn't fathom how this could have possibly happened. And so in a sense, she was saying, can God actually keep his promises? Because we've heard this. We've lived under the shelter of this promise for years and years and years. And now, now, God replies, is anything impossible for me? Maybe as we're wrestling through these things this morning, you're hearing this text and you're also laughing, in a sense. Like, can God really keep his promise to me? Peter says, yes, God will keep his promises. Even when things look hard, even when times get tough, walk with him, and as you do, you don't need to fear anything. Verse 6. You become Sarah's children and you do what is good and don't fear any intimidation. Think about um, Psalm 23, we closed with last week. The Lord is my shepherd, I have everything I need. He leads me, he guides me, he protects me. That's his promise. And before this section wraps up, Peter does have a word for husbands too. So gentlemen, we don't get off easy here. Verse 7. He says, husbands, in the same way, it's not a new thought. This is a continued thought. In the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as the weaker partner, showing them honor as co-heirs of grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Now, I would guess that as you read that verse, there are one, two, three, four, five words that probably stand out the most and really make, especially in our cultural day, the hair on the back of our neck stand up and us just want to scream. And those would be as with a weaker partner, right? It sounds a little demeaning. It sounds like there's some inequality there. So let me throw this out. Of all the study guides and materials and commentaries I read this week, everybody agrees that the only thing those words are talking about is the, the generalization that husbands are physically bigger than wives. That's it. That's it. There's no sense of, of, of inequality. There's no sense of, of whatever else. It's just that, and our culture is wrestling with this now as well. Generally, males are bigger than females. That's all he's talking about. Now, it says, though, that a husband is called to live with his wife in an understanding way. If um, you 
have been around the church for a long time and maybe use the King James Version. You may know that that section there says, says uh, live with your wife according to knowledge. And the word for knowledge is one of, of intimacy, or even sexual in, intimacy, excuse me. So he's calling, Peter is calling the husband to live out his one flesh relationship with his wife with the most utmost care and intimate concern. One commentator writes this. I think it's helpful, so I'll quote it a little bit at length. So husbands, know this. Your wife deserves nothing less than your most elevated and intimate care, concern, love, and honor. That's it. Your most elevated and intimate care, concern, love, and honor. Goes on to question, is it any wonder that Christian women today are frightened in this area of life? Too many men are only fixated on their own needs and desires. Please forgive us. Too many are not living according to knowledge. Too many are bringing into the marriage bed a view of sex that's borrowed from the world and a view that is base and unlovely. And Peter provides a well-placed corrective to show honor to your wife. Husbands, our chief concern as we lead our homes and live in our homes, other than following Jesus, is the flourishing of our wives. And let me tell you, when I get this right, and I often don't, I often fixate on my own needs first, and I'm still selfish, there's still sin in my heart, but when, when I get this right, and, and I care for her in an understanding way, in the best way, all of the anxiety around the word submit in verse 1 just kind of melts away. It's tragic that Peter has to remind his readers and us that our wives are co-heirs, equal partners in the grace of love. We have equal access to Jesus. We're equal partners. We are equal. Our wives are the bride of Christ. We've also been bought with his blood. Equal, co-heirs of the grace of love. We protect our marriages because of that. The second reason we protect is found right at the end of verse 7. Live with your wives this way so that your prayers, and that yours plural, so that the prayers of you and your wife will not be hindered. Guys, I don't, know, I don't know about you, but for me, sometimes it's hard to pray with my wife. I don't know what it is. There's like a, I love her like crazy. Um, I trust her. I believe her. But when we come to prayer, sometimes it just seems like maybe there's this, this vulnerability that I just feel like being exposed. Like if I don't, I don't know, say the right words, she'll be like, I, I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. Because she's never done that, actually, which is fascinating. It's amazing. Give me a 30-second round trip. It's amazing to me how so many of like my personal fears, whether it's fear of not measuring up, fear of failure, fears of all these things that like can cripple me at times, when I really like look at why are you scared of that or what's behind that, the reasons are just like dumb, frankly. I'm scared of this because I'm scared of it because people might 
respond in a certain way. Well, has anyone ever done that? No. So why are you scared of it? I don't know. I don't know why it can be hard for us sometimes to pray for our wives. For some of us, not on every. Something I'm still working on. But if I'm not living in an understanding way with my wife, look at this. Our prayers will be hindered. So I've got work to do. You've got work to do. And guys, when we get this wrong, because we will, we then turn back to Jesus. We repent. We ask for forgiveness. We turn to him because he perfectly understands. He knows his bride, the church, and he loved the church so much that he gave himself up for her. As we kind of put a bow on this section, these verses and the larger section, the heart of 1 Peter here, the overriding principle has been on submission. As we've talked about chapter 3 this morning, Peter has said, women, don't just dress up your outside. Take good care of your soul. Because that's what's important. And your reward for this is the possible salvation of your spouse. I would suggest if your spouse is already a follower of Jesus, you will encourage him to follow him more. Your reward for caring for your soul is being precious in the sight of God. What matters more than that? Nothing. And the living hope that God promised. And Peter said, Husbands, live godly lives in the home. Because the world is watching. And the world needs to learn how to do marriage. The world needs to learn how to love one another and submit to one another and build one another up and put one another's needs ahead of your own. Can we pray for us? I'm going to invite Tony and the team to come close us. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Bible. Thank you even for the hard and uncomfortable texts that we come across. I pray that this morning that you would uh, reveal some things in our own hearts where maybe we're, we're not in line with this. Maybe let's start with one. Not all of them, God. Please show us mercy and grace. And I ask that you would help us to repent of the ways that we've fallen short of your glorious standard, to come back to you. I pray that you would continue to work in us and through us and transform us to look more like Jesus. And I pray that the way that, that we treat our husbands and the way that we treat our wives would make the world around us look at us and, and see you. May your name be made great and your kingdom would be built. Jesus, thank you for being our example. And thank you for being our substitute. So that when we get it wrong, we can come back to you. We live out of your forgiveness and your grace as we grow to be more like you. And Jesus, we pray these things in your name. Amen.